Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Maybe you've heard of spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, but why would we focus on those being embodied? What difference do our bodies make when it comes to the spiritual life? Well, that's what we're talking about, especially since this is called the Embodied Faith Podcast. It seems pretty important. We're going to be focusing on uh, why embodied spiritual practices. As always, I'm Jeff Holsclaw, and this is the Embodied Faith Podcast brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is seeking to grow faith for everyday people. Well, today joining us for the show is Josh Wilson. He is the leader or one of the leaders, I think there's multiple leaders of The Table, which is a multiracial microchurch movement in Boston. He has served in multicultural and multiracial churches in and around Chicago and Philadelphia and Boston. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, man. It's so great to be with you. I'm a, a fan of the podcast, so it's so fun to be on. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you very much. Well, I was uh, just announcing that, you know, season two is uh, dropping, which is this episode is a part of it. And you're like, oh, I'm so excited because, you know, we just made a value of having embodied spiritual practices as part of your church DNA or something like that. You just said something yeah, briefly absolutely. and I was like, I'm going to invite you to have you on. So could you <laughs> could you just kind of walk us through a little bit about what it means or why you put embodied in front of spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines? Why did you add that? Oh man, I'm going to try and answer this question without, at least for the moment, telling my entire life story. But no, you could tell the whole story. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think at its core for us, um, and, and I'll, I'll speak for myself. I, I was involved in, in crafting uh, those those value statements, or we, we talk about them as <laughs> postures, even, and I think that has to do with a bit of the embodied nature of them as well. But uh, for me, em- embodied spiritual practice really is about. Um, uh, our, our Christianity and the way that we express it, not just being something that's cognitive, not just being something that's kind of uh, left brained, um, uh, but but really uh, making its way down into uh, our full selves and um, that it shows up in our emotions and our hearts, that it shows up in our practices and the things we do. Uh, there's probably a few things going on there. And I've been talking about embodied spiritual practice for a while. I, I would say that over the the period of time that I've been thinking and talking about that, the focus has probably shifted and evolved a bit. Um, but but this idea of it being uh, uh, that our that our faiths don't just live uh, at a cognitive space in our brains is probably core to that for me. Well, you mentioned just before we jumped on that some of this uh, is part of your own faith journey, and, you know, and then you you use the the famous or infamous words of deconstruction and reconstruction. How is it that uh, this idea? emphasis on embodiment has been a part of that kind of process for you. Oh my gosh. Uh, such a huge part it, of it. Wait, you only yeah. have two minutes. Two, no, two minutes. Saying. Yeah. That's not going to no. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, I won't, I won't tell my whole story, but I, I will say that, um, you know, this is, it is very personal for me. Um, I grew up, uh, my, my formation began in 
what would be self-described as a fundamental Baptist space. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, uh, my, my family and even I personally were, were kind of heroes of that kind of Christianity growing up. Uh, we were all the way bought in. My parents were and, and, and are just incredibly sincere, devout people who really love Jesus and others and have devoted themselves to kind of spreading the gospel. When I was 10 years old, uh, my family moved from the Midwest. We lived in a rural town in Ohio to Moscow, Russia as missionaries to plant a church. Um, yeah, so it was kind of all, all the way in it, which which it kind of elevated us to this hero status within kind of our little uh, fu- uh, fundamental Baptist tribe. Uh, and, and then I, I, you know, kind of continued that journey and in some ways, uh, some question marks began to pop up along the way. Um, but, but I also saw a lot of good, um, particularly in my parents' lives. Uh, I went on to a very fundamentalist, fundamentalist school for my undergrad, uh, to train really to follow in, uh, my parents' footsteps. Um, but I'm, I'm a super curious person. Um, I tend to to interrogate things and, and just keep asking questions and go further and further down the rabbit hole. And yeah. along that journey, some things just started to not make sense, not add up. I, I, I started to, to, to realize there were some things here that needed to be pulled apart. And I would say initially that was very much of a cognitive thing for me. It was, you know, at the, at the, at the head level as I was wrestling with the relationship between church and culture. But I began to kind of, you know, nibble around the edges of deconstruction, you might say. Um, I wasn't the kind, uh, as many of my peers were, who just threw the whole thing in the waste bin and went off drinking. Uh, maybe I was just too nerdy and uncool to get invited to the parties. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> um, uh, it, it was it was a process of deep theological reflection. And at a certain point, specifically, I was a couple years into that process. I was now in seminary uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, leading in a, a church plant that was more of a, a non-denominational hipster church plant type of a space. I had evolved from my my fundamentalist Baptist uh, roots at that point. And in the in the midst of this, um, my marriage, uh, my first marriage at the time, collapsed. Uh, mm. My wife left me in the faith. Um, I was just blindsided and crushed. And and what that experience exposed for me really was that. Um, our faith, both both hers and mine, had been just incredibly hollow. Um, we were we were in many ways kind of uh, what people had been pressing for within our little expression or stream of, of Christianity. Um, we were what uh, the other parents told their kids. You know, you should be like it, it, these guys, and mm. and yet at the same time, uh, there wasn't a depth. There wasn't an embodiedness to our faith. It was very cognitive. Uh, it was behavioral in the sense of like, don't do these things, do these things, serve in ministry. But when you get to to attachment, when you get to love, um, there wasn't, a, it was, it was very thin. And um, uh, for, for my ex-wife and I, um, that has led to different outcomes. Um, uh, you know, I, I have, I have continued to hang around with Jesus, although um, for a long time, I wasn't sure if, if the problems that I was kind of deconstructing was the entire Jesus movement or just this stream of kind of American Christianity mm-hmm. that I had been seeped in. Sure. Um, but uh, that quest really uh, drove me uh, to pursue with a lot of intensity, this question of like, how does genuine transformation happen? How do people become people who live and love like Jesus, which is uh, the, the table or church's mission statement. And, um, and, and that quest has really propelled me into this, into this um, question of, what does an embodied faith look like, um, both for the church in terms of its social action and, and engagement on issues of politics and race and things like that, but also individually um, in terms of our emotional life and our relational life? Um, you know, how do we become people who in an embodied, holistic way 
really love well. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that, um, I think that kind of story really resonates with people. Uh, and it kind of represents a lot of people um, where this kind of, you said hollow, or shallow, brainy faith just could not kind of weather the storms of life, end up creating kind of false expectations, and uh, and then it just crumbled. Uh, and then I, I think you ended up like finding someone like Dallas Willard or other kind of yep. spiritual formation kind of people. Um, and so you were introduced to like spiritual practices, but when you when you really have been emphasizing this idea of embodiment. What do you think, like, why, why do you think that'll do good work in like your churches, uh, the microchurch movement in Boston? Like, what is your hope that uh, people will be able to live into then as a response to this idea of like, we're really focusing on being embodied as followers of Christ? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I, I would say we're, we're looking at both. Um, I see the body, right. And our embodied faith as both. Uh, a part of the answer to how do people change and also a piece mm. to the measurement of, well, if we have changed, if we're following Jesus, if we're beginning to live and love like Jesus, what do our lives look like? Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think it changes the way that we think about both of those things. I'm probably, um, well, we could, we could really uh, go a long way down either of those, those trails, but um an embodied faith, obviously, you, you get into some of the stuff um, like you mentioned Dallas Willard earlier, who has been just one of the most, if not the most influential kind of thinker and theologian in my own uh, development and, and, and theological development. Uh, there have been many, many others at this point, but but Dallas was one of the the first um, uh, folk who really helped to, to really kind of in the, the spiritual formation movement, introducing these ideas of spiritual practices and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um there's also when I think of kind of uh, a faith that is embodied in terms of how we form people, uh, obviously uh, habit formation begins to come into play, right? How, uh, you, you begin to get into conversations around uh, attachment and how our social relationships and our social formation relate to uh, the people that we are becoming. And of course, there's a lot that neuroscience has to say about that. So there's 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 a number of different ways I think where. Um, there are shifts that need to occur if we really take our embodied selves seriously in the way that we do spiritual formation and and transformation. Um, And then of course uh, so many ways in which the outcomes would be measured, not simply in kind of the, the way in which we answer questions with the correct propositional truths, uh, but by, you know, as Jesus talked about the quality of our love for one another, the way that we live in community, the way that we care for the poor, the way that we, uh, navigate things like finances and our, 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 our uh, lived environment. So anyway, there's many other uh, hopeful consequences sure. to that kind of embodied formation, I think. So uh, spiritual formation, transformation, or how do people change were kind of the things that were animating your questions and your hopes mm-hmm. for the church and for your own life. Uh, and you'd already come to the conclusion that, you know, just better Bible knowledge, uh, clearly articulate and orthodox, you know, version of the church doctrine of the Trinity or something like that, that doesn't really change the heart of people. So what real practically then what would like an embodied practice or an activity like kind of look like, what are you calling your people into then? Um, yeah. Whether it's a, a great question or a week by week kind of process. Right. So, um, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of answers to that. One of the, one of the, 
one of the beauties and challenges of being in a multiracial microchurch movement is um, while I am a leader, I, I, there's no, <laughs> there's no universal thing that is happening across the movement all, 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 with all, with all people and all microchurches in the same way. But, um, you know, some of the things that we do are just to, to be very, very tangible is I would say in our like Sunday environments, right. Um, where we're having kind of a hub gathering, a traditional Sunday worship service type of a thing. Um, you know, I, I still, I and others still preach and teach in those spaces, um, but I would say that has been de-emphasized relative to kind of the primacy of place that has been given in in some in or most kind of evangelical churches today. Um, whereas uh, we regularly have um, extended times of spiritual practice together. So this Sunday um, we're 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 training on a discipleship tool, and um, we spent a, a long time in silence together as part of our kind of hub worship gathering. And then we spent time in, in breakouts, kind of engaging that and exploring that and discussing the experience and thinking about what that could look like to bring that into our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just one very tangible example. Um, I think we also have a very intentional discipleship pathway that we've built that brings a lot of these things um, in in other types of, of uh, spaces and environments to bear in ways that allows people to really experientially and socially engage um, in, in concepts rather than it, it simply being, here's a cognitive piece of information that I'm communicating. So it's not just information sharing. It's this doing things. So like corporate spiritual formation, um, like silence, um, what would be some other, whether they're corporate or individual, what are some other like, um, is it breath prayers or, uh, yeah, we've, we've probably, you know, we've done, we've done Lectio, we've done imaginative, we've done readings of scripture, we've done any number of, if you can think of a spiritual practice that's common in evangelical or liturgical spaces, we've probably done it in a public space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, I would say incorporating those things, but I, it goes, to me, it goes beyond that as well. One of the things that's been, um, really began to shift the way I related to, to some of, um, some of these questions of formation and change um, was uh, I attended uh, together with my, my wife, um, a series of kind of four day transformational trainings um, that um, really had these bold promises about change and were really vague and unclear. And mm-hmm. um, we, we got into the spaces and I would say on the other side of those, uh, they've been some of the most uh, personally impactful and transformational spaces that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of. But what they what they really did was they created shared experiences um, for people. And then they took a coaching posture to debrief those experiences. And then maybe after the fact, um, there was a frame to like explain what had happened. Um, but we try and bring some of that same methodology into the ways that we actually do discipleship. Uh, this would be less probably in a, a Sunday worship type of a space, but within some of our discipleship cohorts and, and those types of environments where we're, we're creating by way of, uh, you know, experiential exercises, right? We have people do things together, whether it's collaborating on a project together, uh, often a, a project for mission, um, or, or even doing something that you you could almost see more um, more in the corporate training space, like a, a, a mm-hmm. team building exercise or something. Um, but things that are very intentionally designed to surface the types of things that happen in real life, the types of dynamics that we're trying to get at such that people aren't, um, 
simply responding to a, a, a concept at a cognitive level, but their, their bodies have been engaged in a process. They've actually done something. They've done something socially together in a way where they're confronted a re- with a reality of how they show up and how they love and how they actually um, relate with others in a, in a really tangible way. Mm. And then I think when we respond less with a kind of just in case, let me just tell you all the information, but kind of a just in time intervention that says like, Hey, here's this, here's this dynamic that actually just played out between you and another person in real time. And how else is this playing out in your life? Oh, I, as it turns out, this plays out with my spouse all the time. Right. And then all of a sudden we're, we're doing discipleship about real relationships and real spaces based on concrete experiences. And for us, um, bringing those things in and we're still, I would say iterating and learning to do that well, borrowing from others, um, but but leveraging some of these types of approaches to discipleship uh, is incredibly embodied and um, has really uh, helped people see profound profound mm. experiences of transformation in our context here. So then the two things that I heard, because I think a lot of times when I think of spiritual practices, uh, I think of, <clears throat> I do them alone um, and I kind of do them in my head. You know, maybe I, I pray a Jesus prayer by holding beads. So maybe that's kind of embodied, but I'm really kind of engaging my consciousness. But it sounds like uh, two of the things that you are emphasizing is that we really need to be relationally working together. And so actually you don't do part of being embodied in these spiritual practices is you're not doing them alone. And then what I also heard was uh, kind of experiential learning. Like you're actually kind of, you know, you, you're kind of, you're just doing it. You're in it and doing it together. Uh, and so I think that kind of helps us kind of for those who kind of have heard of spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices and they're, they think they're spiritual. So they're like out of my body and they're individual. If they're done alone, what you're trying to say is, well, if they're embodied, they're really, you know, we're doing them together. Can you tease out that distinction? You said just in, just in case learning and then just in time learning. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, so uh, two just different ways are a, a lens for thinking about the the information that we receive. Right. And um, obviously some learning or that we put in kind of the, the just in case category would be the types of things that most of us learn in school. Right. And the types of stuff that honestly, most of us learn in church. Um, so it's, it's uh, how to do math, right. Or it's um, you know, how to, how to read and study our Bibles. Right. Or uh, the, eschatology, right? It's, it could be any number of things, but, um, things we're being taught, whether it's a skill or competency, um, or just like a a data set, right? A bunch of facts or a worldview. Um, we're kind of being taught this and we're saying, you know, Hey, at some point, this is going to be important for you, right? At some point, this will be relevant. Like these are things that you just should know just, you know, just in case, like there's probably some point where this is useful, Whereas just in time learning, I think is is really responsive to what people are actually experiencing. It's it's the situation where a couple is coming into counseling because of a problem in their marriage, right? And I think for any of us who are teachers, we know that the person who is studying because they're actually in the midst of something, they're actually uh, receiving an answer to a question rather than just something that maybe will be useful at some point down the road. It really makes all the difference. Um, and of course, we see, uh, you know, I'm not, not trying to denigrate just in case learning. I think there's a, a time and a place for it. But so much of the ministry that we see in Jesus, right, is is this just-in-time learning. He's actually doing things together with his disciples. They're sharing experiences, and then they're going and debriefing them, and they're having actual learning that's responsive to the events of their lives. 
So that doesn't work with programs, right? You know, if you're running a program and you need a hundred people to show up, it's really tough to find a hundred people who are all going through the same experience at the same time. Um, So there's a time and a place for just in case learning. I'm not against it, but I do think that to the degree that we can find pathways and environments and, and build structures that help people to learn the things that they need to learn at the time when they're actually asking the questions, or as we've done a bit, actually create experiences which raise the question for people in <laughs> tangible ways, right? Actually give people an experience, ask people to go on a missional project together or do something, right? Which which generates a set of questions for people mm-hmm. um, that then all of a sudden uh, they're, they're much more eager to engage or to learn from than if you just give them the information in a vacuum. So part of the experiential and relationally embedded learning is your your prompting a crisis that then you can give just in time teaching to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I would say oh, that's exactly right. I like it. Very yeah, so good. we we I, I spend a I spend a lot of my my life trying to come up with creative ways to to meddle and create mischief and and to, to raise questions that are real for people, but in a way that brings them to the surface. And of course if you you know if you think about Jesus te- teaching method methodology, if you think about the way he used parables this was so much of what he did, right? He, mm. he asked questions to provoke people uh, to really wrestle with issues, to come back to him at a point where they were actually ready to learn. Mm. And so, um, you know, how do we do that? I've never had a class. I wish we had classes and seminaries that, that helped us wrestle with how to do this. We're, we're out here kind of iterating and figuring this out, but I think it's an important question uh, for any of us who really want to help people navigate this transformational process. Yeah, for sure. What? Well, I- uh, I like that reference to what Jesus did because he would definitely like he would, you know give a parable and the disciples would be like hey we didn't know what you were talking about like, <laughs> what do you mean uh, haven't we already given up everything to follow you and now you know and they're just like in crisis so so the what I'm hearing from you is that the role of a leader or a pastor in a church is to regularly throw people into crisis so that then you can <laughs> teach them and form them. So some of the people in our movement would uh, would agree with your assessment of my ah, leadership, okay. but that I, I'm not sure that that's actually better, exactly what I'm no. going after. But uh, but yeah, I, you know, or at least at least not rescuing people from their experiences. Or you know, it's easy to criticize the helicopter mom who does that with her kids, right? But how often do we, as pastors and as professors and people who are teaching and training disciples? you know, do precisely the same thing as opposed to allowing people to actually engage experientially spaces and creating a context of coaching and care where we can um, create a safe space for them to to ask and wrestle with the questions of what it looks like to follow Jesus in that space. Yeah, great. Well, just to uh, wrap up, as you've been trying to do this and uh, you bring people in, you've probably kind of hit resistance or confusion what do you think are the theological or maybe cultural barriers that people have uh, that causes them to either not understand, appreciate, or to neglect kind of this embodied kind of perspective? Oh, man, uh, <laughs> there are a bunch. Unfortunately, I, I wish that wasn't so. You know, uh, I, I'm thinking of the the story of the rich young ruler and I would say often it just costs too much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and often that cost, um, at least here in Boston, is really one of time. Um, mm-hmm. People uh, certainly here are so busy. Life is very full. And um, 
slowing down enough to actually live in thick community, to make space for shared relationship. Um, you know, this gets into the need for proximity and some of these things. We've we've really structured a whole church ecosystem um, that is is tailored to run programs and provide kind of disembodied cognitive focused learning. And so, you know, how do you actually have thick relationships with people in a, in a way where you can um, have the source, the raw source material um, for this kind of just in time learning that we've been talking about? Mm. Um, I, I would say I would say hurry is the number one issue. And of course, uh, I'm back to agreeing with Dallas here um, in terms of it being, you know, the core obstacle to the spiritual life. Um, hurry would definitely be one. I, I also think that we, um, and, and maybe I'm speaking specifically to some of my conservative evangelical and fundamentalist background here, but man, we're really addicted to getting the right propositional faith correct and being really certain about that and defending that, that kind of system of theological beliefs. And I, you know, I'm not against propositional beliefs or any of those types of things. I just like Jesus, I'm really concerned that those things work their way down into our bodies, into our life, into our love. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when people are oriented towards that, then it makes sense that the, the preaching act is the, the be all end all and that the teaching, right, that the teaching and scripture um, is, is this in, entire focus. And um, I wouldn't say that we de-emphasize teaching or scripture, but they're, they're in a context of life together. Right. Um, and so we, we spend time doing things that look almost like psychology that just sit with where people are really at um, before we take them to scripture sometimes. And then we spend time with uh, things that look almost like coaching with helping people figure out what does it mean to actually walk this out in obedience. Right. And that just, that requires slowing everything down and taking more time together. And um, oftentimes we're so attached, I would say, to this uh, doctrine of individualism, uh, this kind of cognitive approach to Christianity and to our busy lives that frankly, it's easier to be disembodied in our faith. Mm. Well, I think that's a great place to end and a kind of a great final exhortation is that embodied practices, following Jesus, as you say, learning to live and love like Jesus takes time and it takes thick relationships. And uh, it seems like our culture is manufactured to exactly travel in the opposite direction. So let's all figure out how to take time for one another, take time for Jesus and to kind of thicken our relationships with each other. Well, thanks so much, Josh, for taking some time and uh, jumping in. Any last thoughts, anything that you just like, Oh, I really want to (laughs) say. No, I think this is, this is great. I'm right with you. It's just, uh, you know, it's one day and one step at a time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. As always, you can find uh, the Embodied Faith podcast uh, wherever you listen to podcasts on iTunes, on Spotify. We're also on um, YouTube on my channel, Jeffrey Holsclaw. So please like, rate, review, and do all that stuff. And again, thank you, Josh, for coming on today. Oh man, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, maybe we'll uh, talk again sometime about that micro church thing that you're doing. I'd love to. <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you. 